Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Legends of War podcast. I'm your host, Griffin. Today we're going to talk about the 1916 Easter Rising or Easter Rebellion in the history of Ireland, the bloody war military history of Ireland. I was somewhat embarrassed about my lack of knowledge about Irish history, and it wasn't until November of... 2022 that I finally made it over to the island of Ireland and what a beautiful place it was. However, this isn't a travel podcast. This is a war history podcast. When I was over there, I took a walking military history tour. I felt I was really introduced to a lot of the military history Ireland, which is phenomenally interesting. The next few podcasts I want to cover some interesting and pivotal aspects of Irish war history and Irish history in itself. When you think of revolutionary events that changed the course of history, most of the time you think about the successes, like our revolution, the American Revolution, which led to the establishment of the United States, the Haitian Revolution, which gave France the boot um, and was one of the only successful slave rebellions that turned into a nation. The Russian Revolution, which overthrew the monarchy and eventually ushered in communism, which I don't know was much better. And then there's the Easter Rising or the Easter Rebellion. I'll refer to it as the Easter Rebellion because that's how I was introduced to it in Ireland. Now, this took place during Easter week on Easter Monday, April 26th in 1916. An overview of that rebellion shows us that even though it didn't result in a regime change or a new government, it can still be considered a success. And that's because the Easter Rebellion changed the course of Irish history. Even though it didn't achieve immediate independence for the Irish, as a limited participation of the Rising showed, many Irish at the time were not full supporters of independence. Even if they were, they didn't see the current political situation as worthy of risking their lives, especially since a Home Rule Act, which would allow Ireland to largely govern itself while still remaining part of the United Kingdom was passed and only waiting for the end of World War I to become enacted. Now, the Easter Rising changed all of this because of the brutality with which the British put down the Rising, the way they punished the those involved, the pendulum of public opinion swung in the opposite direction. At that time, the Irish public saw something new about the regime that controlled their lives. And in their view, Britain had sent a clear message about what they thought of the Irish people. And the majority of the Irish at that time felt that the British response was inhumane. It went much farther than too harsh. To many Irish people at the time, their belief was that the British viewed them as second-class citizens. Now, this wasn't the first time that the Irish felt this way. During the Great Hunger and the Potato Famine in the 1840s, many Irish came to believe, through British inaction and disregard for Irish suffering, that Britain did not care about the fate of the Irish people. Many Irish held on to this anger and drive for independence. As more time passed, the memory of the Great Famine faded, and in the aftermath of the Easter Rebellion, though this feeling of injustice was reinvigorated, and with it, the Irish had what they needed to fight for their ultimate independence. Now, in terms of casualties, immediate impact, or regime change, the Easter Rebellion was not drastic, but its eventual effect 
was immeasurable. Without the Easter Rebellion, it's not outside the realm of possibility to say that Ireland, as we know it, might not exist today. We can trace the roots of the Easter Rebellion back more than a hundred years into Ireland's history, when it was initially annexed by the British Empire. When most people think of British colonialism, they probably only think of the United States, the Caribbean, or India, and not Ireland. Ireland became part of the United Kingdom willingly, actually. Colonialism is a better way to understand Ireland's position within the UK because Britain maintained control and ruled her from afar with its own best interests at heart. In 1800, the Irish Parliament agreed to form a union with the United Kingdom. However, the Irish Parliament was far from a democratic or even a republican institution. For one thing, many Irish couldn't vote. Voting rights were restricted to male landowners only. That meant that a large population of poor peasants, who composed the majority of the population at the time, were completely disenfranchised, and women had absolutely no representation. What was more was a religious requirement for holding a seat in Parliament further tilted the balance away from the majority of the Irish people. What this meant was, in order to hold a seat in Parliament, you had to be a Protestant. But meanwhile, most Irish people, especially the lower and middle classes, were Catholic. The conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland had been long-standing even by this point, and is a well-recognized source of great strife on the island. That it was also a factor contributing to the Easter Rebellion should come as no surprise. Even in the unrepresentative Irish Parliament in 1800, they weren't convinced that joining the United Kingdom was a good idea, and many members had to be bribed in order to vote for it. So after it passed, the Irish Parliament was dissolved, and though Ireland was granted some seats in the British Parliament and some voting laws changed, it still continued to be difficult for the majority of Irish people to have their voices heard. Now, Irish men and women would continue to fight for Irish autonomy, but religious divisions always stood in the way. The powerful Protestant minority population feared a retribution or an oppression should the Irish Catholic majority gain any kind of political power or control. Now, this highlighted the fact that the religious conflict was not wholly dogmatic, but just as much about discrimination and power than about religious traditions. So those who opposed British rule of Ireland did try to achieve their goals through legislative means. But just as with other major political issues, there were more than two sides. On one end of the spectrum, there were the people in Ireland, mostly Protestants, who didn't want to see any changes to the political structure at all. On the other extreme were those who wanted a complete independence and a total break from the United Kingdom. But there were others that were squeezed in the middle. They were much more moderate. Now, chiefly, there were a large number of people who advocated for what became known as home rule, and they would agree to remain in the United Kingdom. But they wanted Ireland to be largely governed by a separate Irish political body. So in some ways, these people were the most realistic in their goals, knowing full well that Britain was highly unlikely to grant Ireland independence, at least without a long and violent struggle. So they had hoped for more local control over the governance of the island, as well as, as land reform. This was led by a man named Charles Purnell, and the Irish Parliamentary Party struggled initially, but was encouraged when some successes were achieved. Mainly, they managed to have several imprisoned Fenians freed in the 1870s. Charles Parnell's power among 
representatives in Parliament grew, and by 1886 he was able to have the first Home Rule Bill presented, which had the support of some powerful members. Its narrow defeat caused rioting back in Ireland, mostly in Belfast, which demonstrated the popularity of the Home Rule policy. And a second Home Rule Bill was passed in 1893 by the House of Commons, but was defeated by the House of Lords, which is a traditionally conservative branch where it had little chance of success anyway. But in 1914, the third Home Rule Bill was passed, and this became the Government of Ireland Act in 1914. While reigning liberalism in Parliament provided the conditions necessary to pass the act in the first place, timing was against those who supported Irish Home Rule. Another act was the Suspensory Act, and it was passed alongside. Now, what this act did was delayed implementation of Home Rule until the end of World War I. Now, this delay was one of the factors that contributed to the outbreak of the Easter Rising uh, Rebellion in 1916 during World War I. Most of the rebellion's leaders opposed home rule. They were advocates of complete independence. They wanted to thwart the Government of Ireland Act. They believed it didn't go far enough. Ireland's issues with British rule weren't just political. They didn't agitate for home rule because they were inspired by the Enlightenment ideas of representative government and the rights of man. In many ways, Ireland was oppressed by Great Britain, and the Irish people used other means to try to strike back. One major event in Irish history that highlights the suffering was the Irish diaspora. Closely tied to the Great Famine, also known as the Great Hunger, or the Irish Potato Famine. Most Americans were familiar with this event because of the large influx of Irish immigrants during the peak years of the famine, and this caused racial and social unrest in the U.S., as well as my personal ancestors arriving here. Living and working conditions in Ireland had been worsened for decades before the Great Hunger had broken out, and some Irish had already decided to leave their homeland for good. Now, the Great Famine occurred when a, a blight or a disease struck the potato plants in Ireland, and it caused several years of crop failures in the 1840s. While this was the immediate cause of the Great Hunger, it alone couldn't cause such widespread devastation. In order for the famine to cause such death and destruction, more than a million people died and a million more left Ireland. The Irish people needed to be deeply dependent on the potato crop alone, which they were. They also lacked the resources to deal with such a crisis, and the reason for this was largely found in the ways that the majority of Irish people were oppressed by policies that British rule allowed. Now off on a side note here, one of the questions I had was, Ireland is an island, and there's fish. Why didn't they just go fish? One of the local friends I made in Ireland uh, broke it down for me. He said that the, the Irish are, are lazy and they didn't want to learn how to fish. And they took their boats and they burned them to make for fuel for the fire to stay warm. That's just conjecture. I don't know if that's true, but that's an interesting take from someone who obviously didn't live through the potato famine, but was born and raised in Ireland. Now, back on track here, Irish peasants couldn't own land. They were also prohibited from holding certain jobs and going to school. While most of these restrictive laws were no longer on the books by 1840, they nonetheless had a, a lasting impact and created an enduring poverty that generations later many families could not dig out of. Land ownership, management, and laws were also a huge problem. Most Irish people 
didn't live on their own land. They were tenants and lived and farmed on a portion of someone else's property. And this caused a great deal of problems. First off, those living on rented land were restricted in what they could do with their land. Even if an Irish family wanted to take the initiative or had the means to improve their home or to try new farming techniques, they, would, they could be prevented by doing so by the landowner or the manager. And secondly, most of the landowners ruled in absentia. They owned huge amounts of land but lived far away in cities or even out of the country. They left the land management to representatives who only had an interest in delivering profit. So even if a landowner was inclined to sympathize with the plights of the tenants, the manager had a good reason to leave the landowner ill-informed, and the worsening years of the famine show that very few landowners were concerned about the well-being of their tenants. These peasant tenants were also dependent on the potato because of the problems with land ownership. So to make more money, the landlords divided their property into lots for each family. The thinking went that they could charge more families rent and earn more profit off of their land. Now, these plots were almost always less than 15 acres and sometimes as small as one acre. But because the tenants were subsistence farmers, they needed to grow food they needed to survive. So the only crop that could provide enough sustenance on those small plots of land was the potato. Irish peasants were overly dependent on the potato. And when the crop failed during the potato famine in the 1840s, for several years, people starved and others, out of desperation, just left Ireland forever. The drastic shift in the population of Ireland came to be regarded as a diaspora by a lot of academic historians. Other than completely altering the population of Ireland, the Irish diaspora had another impact on Irish independence. Many of the families who settled in the U.S. maintained relationships with their, with their kin back in Ireland. They also joined fraternal organizations like the Ancient Order of Hibernians and in other places like Canada. They celebrated their Irish heritage and, and kept their children, their grandchildren with ties to Ireland, just like I was, the exact same way that I grew up. They and we understood completely why we, our families and our relatives and our ancestors had been forced to leave. Now, so many of them also supported the Irish independence movement from afar, particularly through sending money back to the freedom fighters in Ireland. Now, as the, as the famine worsened and both the British government and the landlords did nothing to help them, more and more peasants decided to leave Ireland permanently. Many followed friends and family to the U.S., and they'd form an important support network for Irish national movements in, for decades. So in total, about 25% of Ireland's population was lost. Now that's counting either in the great hunger or death or emigration. So the potato crop, when it eventually returned, the legacy of the famine was, was devastating and, and still not forgotten to this day. As we're building up to the causes on the 1916 Easter rebellion, it's important to understand what happened during the remainder of the 19th century. As the first and second home rule bills were rejected by the British Parliament, many Irish looked to other means besides legislation to make their wishes known and fulfilled. Some of these were paramilitary and violent, but others weren't. Not long before the third home rule bill was finally passed and the rebels began planning the uprising, Bloody Sunday, one of the three events by that name in Irish history happened. In August 1913, Dublin was in the middle of one of its most severe labor crises in history. 
Over 20,000 workers went on strike, largely because they wanted to unionize. More and more law enforcement was brought in to quell the unrest, but instead this just increased tensions. These tensions erupted during a peaceful demonstration on O'Connell Street, a major Dublin thoroughfare that would be super important in the Easter Rebellion. Using batons, police killed at least two people and injured many more. The rioting continued for the next few days, and the brutal tactics of the police, which also included breaking into workers' homes and destroying their property, didn't help to endear the British to the Irish. On a less violent note, a distinct Irish cultural movement flowered in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. It was called the Gaelic Revival, and it was the movement that emphasized elements that were specific to the Irish heritage, including use of Gaelic language, which is still, from my experiences over in Ireland, very popular, and uh, you can't take a train without hearing your destination in Gaelic. Folk dancing, art, sports, there was the Gaelic Athletic League. That became wildly popular, and what that did was encourage thousands of members to celebrate their Gaelic heritage rather than all things English, and even managed to have Gaelic included in school curriculums. The newspaper Sinn Féin was also very influential, and the Sinn Féin League worked for full Irish independence, and they took their mission a step farther than just home rule. This sense of Gaelic or Irish identity was just as crucially important to the outbreak of the Easter Rebellion as was the oppression on the part of the British. People needed to feel that a sense of national identity and camaraderie in order to be willing to risk their lives. Now, many did risk their lives, and some made the ultimate sacrifice. But it would be the sense of national identity that would fuel the anger at the British government in the aftermath of the Rising, which ultimately gave rise to the Irish independence. Irishmen and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. This was published in the Provisional Government of the Irish Republic to the people of Ireland. The Easter Rebellion was violent, but it, it wasn't the first act of violence in the name of Irish independence or home rule. There were paramilitary organizations founded in decades before the Rising, and there were periodic acts of violence in addition to Bloody Sunday. In 1914, when the Home Rule Bill passed, and as we already mentioned, it met with opposition from the Protestants in Ireland who feared a retribution should the Irish Catholic majority gain political power, the Protestants formed the UVF, known as the Ulster Volunteer Force. It was named that because many of the Protestants who opposed Irish independence came from Northern Ireland, in and around Ulster Province. So this prompted the formation of the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army. They were closely affiliated with the IRB, which was the Irish Republican Brotherhood, a secret fraternal organization whose main purpose was Irish independence. Periodic fighting broke out between the opposing factions. No major acts of violence were perpetrated. Many in Ireland and Britain feared that war would break out soon. Now, war did break out, but just not in Ireland. World War I, along with the passage of the Third Home Rule Bill, quelled the unrest in Ireland, at least temporarily. But the desire for either implementation of the bill or derailment of it wouldn't last long. Many Irish people, Catholics and Protestants alike, Home Rule supporters and detractors, supported Great Britain and the Allied powers in World War I, at least initially. 
Many Irish also served alongside British troops in the armed forces, even though allying with Britain wasn't simple for them. They felt that they were fighting a far more dangerous enemy in Germany, and those who had served in the British army, those who had family members fighting in the war, and those who had already lost a loved one or to armed service in World War I, composed some of the chief civilian objectors to the Easter Rising. Despite feelings of support for the cause of the war, those who supported home rule or Irish independence realized quickly that the war might be advantageous for them. Britain was busy fighting a dangerous enemy, and if an Irish independence movement could just put up a good fight, it stood to reason that Britain might just be far more willing to let them go since they were concerned with a much serious threat. Now, it was for that reason that some supporters of Irish independence began planning the uprising that would also become known as the Easter Rebellion shortly after war broke out and Britain entered. It's also important to remember at this time, we can look back at the timing of the Easter Rebellion and know that it fell right smack in the middle of World War I. And those who were participating at the time couldn't have known that. World War I was unlike any war that Europe or the world had seen in the past at that time. And by 1916, it had inflicted unprecedented destruction and death. From the perspectives of all involved, including the Irish, it showed no signs of slowing down. Most battles had ended in stalemates. Armies were fighting in trenches in order to get very small advances. The U.S. at the time did not appear likely to intervene. Woodrow Wilson in 1916 was reelected on his sole promise to keep America out of the war. And from the perspective of that time, it looked like the war was going to be never-ending. Now, compounding anxiety about the war's end and outcome, no one was winning the war. And should Britain have fallen to the Germans, along with most of Europe, who knows what fate may have befell Ireland? A promise was made in the form of a bill passed by Parliament in 1914, which would have been a low priority for Germany, and Irish independence would have almost certainly been put out of the question. For many Irish people, especially those who are who participated in this uprising, they had no affinity toward Great Britain. Irish people at the time viewed Great Britain as a, an oppressor, even if they did join them in fighting against the Central Powers. Striking in the middle of wartime wasn't a problem on any patriotic level. On the contrary, it was seen as advantageous since Britain was so distracted by fighting the Germans that the Irish may have hoped for a swift victory. In fact, Ireland's role in the First World War was one of the immediate causes of the Easter Rebellion. As the war raged, the British government began talking about implementing a draft, a conscription. Ireland was a target. Some English officials believed that the Irish could earn their home rule through military service. Many in Ireland were outraged, as was their representatives in Great Britain and in Parliament. Germany wasn't seen as a universal evil as they would come to be regarded in World War II. Any factions of the independence movement remobilized in the face of this new threat. The Easter Rebellion was an international event. A huge amount of support for Irish independence came from the U.S. Most of the money that the Irish Republican Brotherhood had was supplied by remittances from countrymen in America, many whom bore the legacy of the Irish immigration during the Great Hunger. The anger that many of those migrants felt toward Great Britain didn't abate, and that was passed down to their children and grandchildren. Membership in fraternal organizations especially helped to mobilize support for Irish independence in the U.S. The leaders of the rebellion also sought to ally with the Germans. They thought with German support, they would not be only stronger militarily, but with the uprising would be more frightening to the British, as it 
entailed German presence much closer to home. They negotiated with representatives of the German military and government. And though the Germans declined to participate on a military level, they did send much needed supplies, even ammunition. A shipment of arms was also sent in 1914 and stored until the uprising, providing most of the weapons that the rebels had at their disposal. As we talked about earlier, planning for the Easter Rising began shortly after Great Britain declared war. Now, from the outset, the Irish Republican Brotherhood believed that the war would provide the opportunity they needed to achieve their ends. This effort was well organized. There's some important leaders here that we should talk about. We have Sean McDermott, Patrick Pierce, and Tom Clark. Together, they appointed a staff to head different aspects of the uprising. This included training those who would participate. James Connolly was another important leader as he headed the Irish Citizen Army. He didn't always agree with the rest of the leadership and wanted to take a more drastic action. He was a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, known as a, a radical when it came to political and labor issues. As in any country, there was really no Irish people. Just for simplicity's sake, we could talk about them in this way. There were different perspectives on the issue of independence, but within its supporters, the opinions differed on how it should be achieved, as the conflict between Connolly and other members of the leadership demonstrated. There were other factors involved. There was socioeconomic status, region, occupation, a religious affiliation. Also, these separated individuals into groups. In addition to the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Easter Rebellion would also involve individuals from the Irish Citizen Army, many of whom were industrial workers and radicals, like their leader. The Irish Volunteers, the Sinn Féin Party, and many, many more individuals that weren't affiliated with any particular organizations. In addition, women played a very real role in this uprising. There were more than 200 women from, forgive my pronunciation here, Kamunnamban, or the Irish Women League, fought in the uprising. Easter was on April 23rd that year, and the Easter Rising began on Easter Monday, the 24th. As that date drew closer, the planning became more intense. Sir Roger Casement was a human rights activist and a poet who had been knighted. He arranged for arms to be brought in from Germany. A disguised German ship headed for Dublin on April 9th, but when it arrived ahead of schedule, the British intercepted it and sunk it along with all of the ammunition and supplies on board. But even worse, the arriving shipment confirmed to the British that an armed rebellion was planned, though they had already had some knowledge that something was going on because they had intercepted messages between Germany and Ireland in the weeks before. Sir Roger Casement was arrested and the British had time to prepare, although they were still less prepared than they should have been. Now, because the British had become aware of the plan and they knew that the rebels would be poorly armed, the chief of staff of the Irish Volunteers, Edwin McNeil, whose support for the Rising was never assured, he disbanded his approximately 16,000 participants. Unknown to McNeil at the time, this decision largely spelled the end of his organization. Because they failed to support the Easter Rebellion, the Irish Volunteers, for the most part, disbanded. Now, despite his withdrawal and perhaps because of his leadership, the uprising was not united. Others decided to carry out their plans alone, plummeting the number of combatants to less than 1,800. The Irish Republican Brotherhood was a secret organization, and therefore they had an especially difficult time recruiting because they couldn't be upfront about their, their goals or even their identity. 
the Irish nationalists certainly had the cards stacked against them. Now, because of the disorganized leadership that was not always united, the rebellion faced problems before it began, just not even including the seizure of the arms. McNeil's wavering support was a huge issue, and others took drastic action to get him back involved. A few days before the arms seizure, they succeeded when a forged document that was supposedly leaked from the British released a plan that revealed to arrest several Irish national leaders. McNeil was convinced to support the rising, but quickly changed his mind, going back again to working against it after the arms shipment failed. He published a notice to his followers that the Irish rebellion was off and not to come out. The rest of the leadership met on Easter Sunday and decided to go forward with their plans, despite McNeil's objections the following day. Patrick Pierce was an important member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and was appointed their leader. And once word spread among followers, although delayed a day, the Easter Rebellion would now proceed. One of the reasons that it did happen was probably that the leadership never expected the Rising to be successful, at least not in the sense that they would win independence from Great Britain. Instead, they wished to take a step down that road by demonstrating to both the British and the Irish people that the movement was real and the people were willing to die for it. It was exactly, it was exactly that that was one of the most important outcomes of the Easter Rebellion. The Easter Rising had originally been planned for Easter Sunday, which was symbolic to say the least. Easter being one of the most important Christian holidays and celebrated with a lot of pomp and circumstance among Catholics, even among Protestant churches, Catholics prepared for Easter with several weeks of Lent. It's a somber period of penance and sacrifice, and some people even take uh, ashes and make a cross on their forehead. They do that over here too. Masses are held on the days before Easter commemorates Jesus's return from the desert. The Last Supper, the arrest, the torture, the execution, I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with that. The symbolism of this could especially have been lost on the devout participants as casual observers or even the British. The Irish rebels, whose cause was by some measure religious, hoped that by rising up against the oppressive British rule that they would be reborn out of the ashes into an independent Ireland. So on noon, on Easter Monday, April 24th, 1916, Patrick Pierce read a proclamation declaring Ireland's independence from Britain in front of the GPO or the General Post Office in Dublin. I've actually been inside there and uh, it has, you can still see the bullet holes from when this battle took place. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Now, the uprising had been planned to take place across the country. Fighting elsewhere didn't really materialize. There were a few objections. We can blame Ewan McNeil because he withdrew his support and he had publicized his objections to the rebellion so widely. While there weren't that many rebels, they still were fairly well organized and had a strategic plan, especially in Dublin. Now, despite the fiasco with the German shipment, and still they thought they were adequately armed with rifles, pistols, and even some grenades and other weapons. But in the end, these would be no match against what the British could supply. Around the same time that Pierce read the proclamation, the combatants began to occupy strategic sites around the city. They set up barricades and they focused on controlling the city center. Now, despite having ample warning about the rising, the British were not immediately prepared of what was about to happen. There was not a large law enforcement or military presence in Ireland to begin with. The Royal Irish Constabulary, 
was the chief body, but even then they only had about 10,000 members. The members in Dublin did provide valuable information to the British during the Rising, however. Only about 400 British forces met the more than 1,000 rebel fighters. The rebels quickly overtook the GPO, the General Post Office, where Patrick Pierce gave the proclamation. This became their headquarters, and they also took other strategically located structures in the city, most notably around City Hall and Dublin Castle. Later in the day, an offensive was launched against Dublin Castle, and while the rebels killed a guard and managed to get inside, they didn't move any further to occupy the site. Some of the first casualties of the uprising were actually civilians. Some civilians, for unknown reasons, opposed the uprising and attempted to stop or impede the fighters. There's one incident that was written that happened around St. Stephen's Green, where civilians were shot, and in other places, less drastic forms of violence were used against them. Civilian casualties, though, would outnumber rebel and British casualties combined and be a major source of strife in the aftermath of the Rising. One of the rebels' other chief targets was the Magazine Fort. Now, this was a strategic site used to store weapons in the city that had been occupied since the British built it in 1735. It was located in Phoenix Park within Dublin City, but not too close to the city center. The goal of the rebels at this location were twofold. First, to overtake the guards and steal the weapons and ammunition, then destroy the fort. A formidable symbol of British power and control over Ireland was this fort. They were successful in holding off British troops, and they weren't able to escape with any weapons. While they did blow up sections of the fort, they didn't succeed in completely destroying it, nor was the explosion heard throughout the city where they'd hoped to further inspire others to take up arms with them. Like many other of the rebels' goals, this would only be a partial success. The only thing close to a real battle in the first day took place when British troops scrambled in the absence of their leader and under a disorganized leadership. This engagement with the South Dublin Union, the rebels held a strategic position and were able to hold off the troops, but were eventually forced to surrender. In the aftermath of the Rising, it became very clear that the rebels failed to take poorly defended strategic locations elsewhere in the city. This was probably due to their small numbers, but would nonetheless greatly impact the efficacy of their movement in the days to come. On the second day of the Easter Rebellion, the British got serious. Tuesday, April 26, Lord Wimborne, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, he was Britain's chief political representative in Ireland, declared martial law. And early in the day, the commander in charge of putting down this rising. Brigadier General William Lowe, he was a veteran of the Second Boer War, entered the city. He moved cautiously since he was unsure of how many rebels he faced, and he had only just 1,000 troops under him at the time, but he was still able to, to quickly secure City Hall. As we talked about earlier, the rebels were strategic in their movements, but the failures on their part early on cost them dearly. They failed to capture and secure the railroads, the ports, and the roads into Dublin. Now, this meant that the British could resupply with food, fresh forces, ammunition, whatever else they needed to indefinitely put down the rebellion. The rebels were easily outnumbered early on in their efforts. Now, this didn't mean that they didn't try, and sometimes fierce fighting erupted around these strategic areas. But by the end of the week, Britain had managed to send in about 16,000 troops, as well as ample amounts of modern artillery and supplies that they would use without hesitation against the Irish rebels, the infrastructure, and even civilians that got in the way. General Lowe became aware that many members of the citizen army had spent the night on St. Stephen's Green, 
So in the early morning, he sent more than 100 troops armed with machine guns to attack the Green. The rebels stationed there fought bravely, but they were forced to retreat into one of the other buildings, where they remained until the uprising was put down. The rebels continued to hold out hope that the people of Ireland would take up arms with them, especially since there were few casualties and several successes on the first day of fighting. This support never materialized, and then the less than 2,000 troops were left to fight it out on their own. They had held out for almost a week, which was nothing short of remarkable. The rebels just didn't wait patiently for support. They sought it. The, that afternoon, after they lost City Hall and St. Stephen's Green, Patrick Pierce, the appointed leader, marched out to O'Connell Street, where in 1913, Bloody Sunday had begun, and in Dublin city center, he issued a manifesto to the citizens of Dublin. He called on them for support. Pierce was a great orator, and his pleas largely went unanswered, and very few additional Irish men or women came forward to support the rising. But because the British controlled Ireland, presumably they had an interest in maintaining and preserving the infrastructure. Now, despite the high amount of destruction it experienced over the course of a week, Another one of their objectives for Tuesday afternoon was to recapture and repair the railroad tracks. While they attempted to do so, the rebels took the opportunity to attack. A fierce battle ensued, and by the end, the rebels had forced British troops to retreat and even captured a few of their soldiers. It did not take long for the British to retaliate. They attacked rebel barricades and buildings in the northwest section of the city. They used heavy artillery and they forced the rebels to abandon their strongholds. While well, Tuesday was not a good day for the rebels, they were still optimistic they could hold off the British when Wednesday dawned. They didn't know that so many British troops were available to invade, and many also believed that the British wouldn't wage full-out war against such an important city as Dublin. But the British became much more violent as the rising wore on. On Wednesday, they executed three civilians they had suspected of being involved with the rebellion. One of them became one of the martyrs of the Easter Rebellion and a symbol of British oppression and brutality. Francis Skeffington was a peace activist who had been involved in many movements on behalf of the Irish people his whole life. He supported home rule as well as a full Irish independence, but he was still a pacifist, and he didn't agree with the violent tactics of, of the rebellion, though his wife Hannah supported the rebels and brought them food. He even tried to save the life of a wounded British soldier on the first day of fighting. Despite this, he and several others were arrested and imprisoned on that Tuesday night. The next morning, a British captain, John Colthurst, ordered Francis and two journalists with him executed by firing squad. Now, oddly enough, Colthurst was not the commanding officer at the scene, but the others listened to him anyway, and the three men were gunned down. Colthurst must have known that even in wartime, he had made an illegal decision. Because he immediately began trying to cover up the killings, he was unsuccessful. And now he was arrested and court-martialed after the rebellion had ended. And at Colthurst's court-martial, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity, blaming shell shock. Because of this, he was spared from firing squad and instead sent to a mental institution. He managed to find his way out of there in less than five years, though. The British reinforcements did start to arrive in droves on early Wednesday, and they disembarked at the port of Kingstown. The rebels knew about their arrival, and they were ready as they approached Dublin. The rebels about 20 of them opened fire from a high strategic position on the Grand Canal, and they shot at about 1,000 British troops. Talk about David and Goliath odds. They managed to inflict about 250 casualties and astounding one quarter of the advancing troops. The Brigadier General Lowe didn't change direction 
he kept plowing ahead, and this caused more casualties, not to mention delays and to wear on the advancing troops, who were ordered to continue attacking the rebels. In the end, only four rebels were killed while the British suffered their heaviest losses up to this point. Despite the setback, the tide of fighting would soon turn as the British responded more and more fiercely to put down the Easter Rebellion. As we move on to days four and five of the Easter Rebellion, the fighting continued throughout Dublin on that Thursday and Friday. As the days wore on, it got more brutal and fierce. As less defensible locations fell earlier in the week, the British forces concentrated their efforts on some of the locations that were better defended by rebels in the city. Chief among these was over on North King Street. The layout of this area of the city was so that the rebels were able to build large barricades and keep strategic positions with guns and windows on high ground. Because the rebels were so well defended, the fighting around North King Street was savage. The rebels could pick off British troops sniper style, and the British suffered heavy casualties while inflicting very few. The British tried different tactics on North King Street, as others proved ineffective against the well-defended rebel positions. The Brits even attempted a bayonet charge against a barricade, but were just picked off by rebel guns. They also tried machine guns, but these were not the right weapons to employ because they did not allow for enough precision. Though they may have looked intimidating, they just did not get the job done. Large trucks drove down through the walls as well, but even this tactic couldn't break the rebel stronghold, and it held on until after the surrender. The South Dublin Union was a site of very intense fighting. Down at this location, there were many buildings of different sizes. The rebels used this to their advantage, and they hid in random and strategic locations, firing at British troops by surprise during advantageous moments. As the days wore on, the rebels suffered more and more. They were running out of firepower, they relied on civilians to bring them food, and, and many times was an increasingly risky proposition. What was more, was that the civilians also suffered more and more as the days wore on. The British were able to block most ways into and out of the city, and this cut off a lot of the food supply. As the fighting continued, it was doubtless many people feared that it would devolve into a prolonged, full-out war as they watched their neighborhoods get destroyed. The British, as well, became more desperate. As the rest of the world watched, things in Dublin worsened considerably. Originally, the Easter Rising was meant to be a nationwide event. After McNeil called off his forces, though, it largely fell apart. Despite this, small risings did occur in other parts of Ireland. Just north of Dublin, rebels had some success against British troops using guerrilla tactics, which would later be so important for the Long War for Independence. One somewhat large engagement took place in this region as well, between volunteers and members of the British police force. In County Galway, Poorly armed volunteers attempted to fight against British troops and British police, but they were met with such heavy weaponry that they hardly stood a chance. In fact, the British response to quell the uprising from spreading was so drastic that a gunboat attacked from Galway Bay. More effective were rebel movements in County Wexford. Although they started with small numbers, eventually around 1,000 local men, many of them inspired by the spirit of the rising and their fellow Irishmen they saw fighting, joined the fight. They managed to capture the town of Enniscorthy and intended to keep moving. They captured more and more territory until the British informed them of the surrender on Saturday. And even at that point, these men were not willing to give up the fight. It was only when the surrender were they too willing to put down arms.
Just as elsewhere in Ireland, the British response, whether it was from troops or members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, was harsh. This helped spread anti-British sentiment throughout the country, and not just in Dublin. This would be a crucially important factor when the actual independence movement erupted. By the end of the day on Friday, almost 20,000 British troops had assembled, and most of them were now in Dublin. What was more was that the city of Dublin had suffered massive damage. Probably an attempt to swiftly end the rebellion and turn attention back to World War I, the British did not hesitate to use heavy artillery against the rebels in the city itself. This caused widespread destruction, not to mention many civilian casualties. Many didn't expect the rebels to surrender at all, but fight into the death. The circumstances that ultimately prompted surrender prevented this from happening. First and foremost, they had already suffered heavy losses, and some were quite crucial. For example, John Connolly had been wounded and could no longer command. The rebel forces held their headquarters at the GPO at the General Post Office, but because it had been shelled heavily, a fire broke out and it made it no longer habitable. In a desperate maneuver, the rebels escaped through tunnels to Moore Street, but that was also in vain. The surrender came from Moore Street on Saturday. Patrick Pierce was the one who officially made the surrender to the British on behalf of the entire movement. But other important leaders surrendered from Moore Street as well. This included James Connolly and Michael Collins, who would go on to be crucially important figures in the Irish independence movement into the 1920s. Fighting continued into Sunday, though, and it took some time to reach all the rebel strongholds and outposts and spread the word that Pierce had surrendered on their behalf. After the surrender, the rebel troops were not well treated by any means. In the stronghold on North King Street, where the British had struggled to make progress, British anger was unleashed. The British had suffered 11 fatalities and almost 30 additional casualties there. When they finally broke through the barricades and into the homes in the area, they bayoneted 15 men who they later said were believed to be rebels. They weren't, of course, they were unarmed civilians. In addition to the damage to private property, these type of actions did nothing to endear the British to the Irish population. This was a major legacy of the Easter Uprising. As the dust settled and Dubliners, as well as the rest of the Irish people, had time to take in all that had transpired, the magnitude of the event sunk in. The civilian population of Dublin was very much impacted by the Easter Rebellion, much more so than by World War I. More than half of those that were killed were civilians. 260 non-combatant lives were lost. In addition, they suffered more than 2,000 additional casualties and untold damage to their homes, their businesses, and the infrastructure of their city. They were understandably devastated. As people swapped stories for more information, people swapped stories with each other and more information was printed in the newspapers, it now became clear to the Irish people that the British were primarily responsible for all of their suffering. It was the British who used heavy artillery and shells, and the British who used machine guns and armored vehicles. While the rebels were responsible for some civilian casualties, although the widespread word was that they had avoided civilian casualties whenever possible, in the aftermath, the British came to be regarded as chiefly destructive and as having little regard for the lives of the Irish people they were supposed to represent. While most of the Irish didn't necessarily support the uprising at the outset, the tide of public opinion had turned. The seeds of a legitimate independence movement had now been planted, and the leaders would therefore consider the Easter Rising successful for just this reason alone. In the aftermath of the Easter Rising, severe retribution was brought down on those who had orchestrated it. Since many Irish people were angry about the Rising, they at first didn't voice strong objections. Firstly, the civilian casualties were high, and second, 
The rising caused widespread destruction and devastation, much of which affected the civilian population. Finally, even among those who did believe in Irish independence, many disagreed with the tactics of the rebels and the rebellion itself, especially since martial law remained in place until the end of the year. The sense that punishment was due was real. The objections weren't initially strong against punishing some of the combatants involved in the rising, but how the British did it would swing public opinion completely, handing the victory to the rebels in the end. The following month in May, 15 leaders, including Patrick Pierce, went before firing squads at Dublin's Kilmainham Jail for treason. I was actually there. It was a remarkably ghostly, haunting place. But none of them were given trials beforehand. And these unjust killings seemed endless since they took place across several days. Three, including Pierce, were shot on May 3rd, four on May 4th, one on May 5th, four on May 8th, and the last two victims on May 12th, and this is when James Connolly was shot. More executions were planned, but the public outcry was so fierce that the British were forced to commute all the sentences of the remaining prisoners. And by this point, this still did little to quell public outrage. In addition to the executions in the weeks following the Rising, more than 3,000 people were arrested on suspicion of participating or supporting the Easter Rebellion. And more than half of them were sent to prison in England without trial. It was now both wartime and martial law had been declared. Given that less than 2,000 people participated in the Rising in the first place, the fact that the British sent more than 1,800 men and women to prison meant that many of them were innocent, wrongfully accused, and then sent to prison without their day in court. It's difficult to imagine how their families and friends felt as their loved one, who they knew and had been falsely accused, just languished in prison. This certainly turned many Irish against the British as well. The future of Irish independence was shaped in prison. Undoubtedly, this was not the goal of the British when they meted out this punishment. But since many of the actual rebels were sent to the same prison camps, they earned the nickname Universities of Revolution, where men like Michael Collins began to plot their plans for independence. It was not just in the prisons that the British actions backfired. Among the Irish people, the executions and arrests came to be regarded as atrocities, and many people in Dublin chafed under martial law, which remained in place until the end of the year. While trying to suppress any lingering rebelliousness in Ireland, the British accidentally created more of it. What was more, as time went on, reports of British atrocities during the Easter Rising swirled. One of these incidents involved the fighting on North King Street, which we've already talked about, where 15 civilians were killed by British soldiers as the fighting came to an end. Now, after the rising ended, more horrific details came to light. The British were accused of secretly burying the bodies in unmarked graves to cover up the crime and even robbing the victims after killing them. Regardless, no one was held responsible for these deaths. A famous incident, or infamous, I should say, of British brutality became known as the Portobello killings. This, too, was already discussed when Francis Skeffington was killed, along with other non-combatants. The perpetrator, who was found guilty for reasons of insanity, was out of prison within five years. To the Irish, it wasn't just that these events happened, but the complete lack of regard that the British seemed to display toward Irish lives, along with the executions and arrests, demonstrated unequivocally to many Irish that they lived under a despotic rule. This, in turn, in public opinion, was reflected in what little political representation the Irish people had. Parliamentary elections were held in 1918, and in Ireland, the Sinn Féin party, which had been involved in the Easter Rising, captured most of the seats open for Irish representation. Then, in a bold move that they nonetheless felt represented their constituency, 
They refused to sit in Parliament in London and instead declared their own independent Irish Parliament, the Dalaran, the next year. Especially given that it was only two years after the Easter Rising, this move was very risky. It wasn't beyond the scope of reason to think that these representatives could be accused of treason and arrested, or that retribution could be brought down on the Irish people for electing them in the first place. One factor that worked to their advantage was that World War I had ended in November 1918. Even though they were among the technical victors, the British had suffered massive casualties, expenses, and destruction. They were tired of fighting. The last thing anyone wanted to do was send British troops back into the battle. What was more, they faced the daunting task of sorting out the peace and rebuilding. Despite the challenges, the British would not give in without a fight. After the establishment of Dal Aaron, this new parliamentary body declared Irish independence, and the Irish Republican Army began fighting, much like they had a few years before in the Easter Rising. Maybe learning from the mistakes of the Easter Rising, they didn't launch an all-out attack to try to take the city, but they instead used guerrilla tactics against the British to wear them out and show resolve. These tactics had worked well outside of Dublin, and the leaders learned from their mistakes. While these guerrilla tactics did work, they worked slowly. Fighting continued throughout the next few years, and many gave their lives for Irish independence. In July of 1921, Britain finally agreed to a ceasefire, and then in December, they agreed to allow Ireland to form the Irish Free State. The Irish Free State was to remain part of the British Commonwealth, but would be self-governing. The political transition was necessarily slow, but eventually the rebellion achieved what it had set out to win. From the people I've talked to when I was over in Ireland, their parents, their family, and even some of them who had lived through Ireland in the late 20th century, remember the violence and the conflict in Ireland especially Northern Ireland, which we'll do a whole nother episode on up through Belfast and Londonderry. Fascinating subject. But the violence didn't, didn't stop. This was because six counties in Northern Ireland, including Ulster, decided to not join the Irish Free State and instead remain part of Great Britain as they had lived for more than a century. Even once Ireland was declared the Republic of Ireland on Easter Monday, 1949, and was completely politically independent, these six counties remained. Continued conflict in this area was centered on religion. The primarily Catholic separatists wished to join the rest of Ireland, while the Protestants living in Northern Ireland wanted things to remain as they were. In the end, Patrick Pierce and the other leaders of the Easter Rising would certainly consider it a success. Part of the original plan for the Easter Rising was to essentially start a civil war. If the German armed shipment had arrived, and if Ewan McNeil had not pulled the support of the Irish volunteers, a more widespread uprising may very well have broken out in 1916. Nonetheless, a full-scale war for independence did not materialize then. But in the long run, the Irish would come around on independence, and the Easter Rebellion was crucial for achieving more long-term important goals. An event of this nature was perhaps necessary to ultimately achieve Irish independence. The rebellion demonstrated to the people of Ireland that there were some among them who were willing to risk their lives in the name of nationhood. Undoubtedly, this sparked some patriotic feeling among other Irish men and women. This destroyed the credibility of the Irish Parliamentary Party. Their aims and goals were not satisfactory, and in the end, the rising showed that they held the British well-being above that of the Irish. It also threw a wrench into the Home Rule Plan that was in place. This home rule wasn't enough for the rebels and the groups they represented. To them, British government was merely throwing them breadcrumbs and a mere taste of independence just to placate them, while continuing to maintain control and make money off Ireland 
After the brutality of the Easter Rebellion, many Irish also felt this way. And on no certain terms, how brutal the British really could be was everything. We can't know how Britain would have reacted to a similar Irish rebellion during peacetime, but the fact that they were at war in 1916 meant they needed to end the rising quickly. In April of 1916, no one was really winning World War I, and had the rebellion succeeded in sparking a civil war, the British forces probably could not have handled it. This probably led them to wage such brutal warfare against the Irish Easter Rebellion. The use of heavy artillery against Dublin's infrastructure and buildings, not to mention the civilians, along with the widespread casualties, showed the Irish people that they were subject to a very dangerous and domineering regime. Again, this finally caused the public opinion tide to turn in favor of full independence. All of these factors, as well as the executions, arrests, and imprisonments in the aftermath, succeeded in sparking a patriotic sense in many Irish. This nationalistic fervor and disgust with British rule was critically important in the events to come that would lead to Irish independence. And lastly, the leaders of the Rising ultimately knew that from the start of the chances of winning were slim, and even before they lost the support of the Irish volunteers, that they still decided to move forward even after McNeil pulled out testifies to the bravery and perseverance. In the end, their decision to move forward likely changed the course of Irish history. They got just what they wanted to achieve. Some will regard the leaders and participants of the 1916 Easter Rebellion as heroes. And in the end, the public also fondly remembered them. This is something I noticed over in Ireland that the 1916 Easter Rebellion, as it was definitely a source of tourist enterprise, it was also a source of national pride. And on 1966, the Rising's 50th anniversary, a monument was dedicated in the Garden of Remembrance, and it's popular even today, and yes, I did go see it. These uh, rebels are regarded as crusaders for Irish freedom, precursors to the movement that ultimately proved successful. After a couple pints of Guinness at a pub in the Liberties, I was in a deep conversation with a local Irishman who explained to me how the 1916 Patriots were heroes to the Irish people because they paved the road for Irish independence. These men and women, many who were executed by the British in the aftermath, inspired the country of people to fight for their futures. And in no uncertain terms, the rebels of the Easter Rebellion changed the course of Irish history, as well as in many other places around the world. Well, I hope you enjoyed this first initial podcast talking about the 1916 Easter Rebellion. It's definitely a topic I'm, I'm passionate about now that I've taken some time to dig in and learn more about it. We'll continue on with the 1921 Irish Civil War, which is also fascinating, which these events were a precursor to. So until next time, thanks for listening. This is Griffin from the Legends of War podcast. Mm-hmm.